Welcome, everyone, to this episode of Manufacturing Talk Radio. I'm Tim Grady. I'm here with Lou Weiss. The two of us together host this show. And Lou's company, All Metals and Ford Group, is the present sponsor for Manufacturing Talk Radio. They manufacture open die forgings, custom shapes, and seamless rolled rings for an industry. So if you are looking for something to build a machine, something big, something exciting, check out steelforge.com. Joining us now is our senior correspondent, Norbert Orr, who speaks to us about the industry surveys he does around the world. And you're looking at what he calls a scatter plot on the screen. Norbert, why don't you give us an idea of how the economy is doing globally? Okay. Happy to be with you once again, uh, guys. Uh, and the message continues to be fairly strong. Uh, of course, depending on uh, uh, what, what, what business uh, a company is in and what markets you're in, uh, it's stronger in, uh, in some places than others. Obviously, the tech has really taken off in, uh, in so many ways. So anyway, we're, we're, we'll take a look at what's going on and where, where we see, um, and I've got a, okay. Anyway, let me, let me go here and I think I can point at uh, what's happening. And obviously this has a mind of its own. Uh, okay. We're looking at the scattergram for October. What's happening during October? Uh, uh, I'm sorry, Norbert, can you, for the purposes of our guests, could you explain just for a moment or two what the scattergram is? Okay. That'd be great. Uh, let, let's start, and that's a good point, Lou. Let's start at the beginning, which is basically we have 18 surveys that we follow closely. Uh, from around the globe. Some of them are focused in Europe, some US, some Asia, and so on. I'll point those out as we go through. And, and the whole idea is uh, put them on a grid or scattergram and uh, place them compared to what other countries are doing and see what, what, they, uh, what they look like. And the, it's a typical four quadrant uh, analysis so that uh, if they're in this category here of expanding and weakening, uh, that means that they were growing, but uh, they were growing at a slower pace. Whereas over on this side, it would be strengthening and expanding. Of course, that's where you want the most to be is in that quadrant. Down at the bottom, you've got uh, uh, contracting and strengthening, uh, which would mean that uh, it is getting stronger, but it's at a, it's at a slower rate. Uh, and then the uh, last quadrant would be uh, contracting uh, and weakening. So obviously, that's not where you want to be in that group. And as you see, there's very few in those two bottom groups, which is a very positive uh, response to this. Uh, 
The other thing that I like about this is we, we can put a trend line on there so that this line going up here is showing a very positive trend. Now, interestingly, last month that trend was slightly downward. And so it, it's all reversal. So October was a much better month than September was uh, for people who can participate in this. Now, we've also got uh, some manufacturers that are in this group. And then we have uh, some, some service-related companies. So if we go look at who's at the top in the most desirable position, it's uh, ISM Chicago and also ISM Services. Now, Chicago, interestingly, is 65% manufacturing and 35% services. So in order to get up into that corner, the services have to really dominate. And that's what we see coming out of uh, the Chicago area. Uh, we always associate Chicago with manufacturing, but at the end of the day, I happen to think that Milwaukee is much more important from a manufacturing standpoint. A lot more uh, big uh, facilities and so on. And you've got uh, uh, just a lot going on in Wisconsin from that. Uh, so it's important to get a cross section to see who's, who's going well and who uh, is struggling from that. Norbert, uh, looking at the uh, scattergram, uh, there are you know the two that you mentioned, uh, Chicago and uh, um, services. ISM services. Right. Uh, and actually, we've had both of the committee chairs on those uh, two uh, reports on our, right. on our show a week or so ago. Um, it's not believed that this, these numbers are sustainable. What, what's your thought on that? Uh, well, they're never sustainable. <laughs> okay. uh, it's just a matter of how long is the cycle, right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, the sustainability of the numbers, uh, the numbers always revert to the mean. So to say the numbers are sustainable, they're not, they're not because the cycle is going to reduce. It's, it becomes harder and harder. If you get a 10% month over month improvement this month, it's harder to get a 10% uh, improvement next month and the month after that and the month after that. So uh, it, it automatically tends to, to uh, have a downward trajectory, but it's slow. As growth slows down, the index is going to slow down. Got it. Well, thanks for that, uh, that point uh, because you know, looking at it, we can't be increasing or maintaining a 65, 70 number for any real long length of time. Right. We also tend to forget that it's just basic math associated with it. A, a reading, when 50 is the midpoint, a reading of 55 is a 10% month over month improvement. 
A right. reading of 60 is a 20% month over month improvement. So you can't stay up in that type of area very long. It'll start, you know, uh, we, we've, we've managed to, this economy has held up primarily because the recovery was for large and mid-sized companies. And uh, that they also tend to, to wind down. Uh, I'm not sure how some of the numbers that we're seeing, uh, you know, uh, when you look at manufacturing, you've got to have a strong auto industry. And uh, the volumes are so far down in the uh, auto industry that I don't see how they could possibly uh, support a lot of strength out of that segment. And, and the reason autos are so important of the 18 industries that the Commerce Department follows and so on, uh, the, uh, of the 18 of those industries, 10 of them are highly dependent upon the auto industry. So you have to have a good auto industry to have a good overall economy if it's going to stay very long. Over, let's talk a little bit about Europe. What's going on there? Their numbers aren't uh, anywhere near our numbers, but they are not terrible. Uh, they, they actually are. In fact, you know, the, my, my favorite number coming out of that, Lou, is uh, we saw the, uh, the UK going through all of the uh, ramifications of Brexit and all of the doom and gloom that was supposed to come out of that, uh, they have not had a negative month since Brexit. <laughs> and so they have done extraordinarily well and look to continue. Uh, and the rest of Europe, uh, the Netherlands is always quite strong, but it's not a very big manufacturing sector. Germany is a big issue because uh, they have the auto industry for Europe tied up. And so if the auto industry is doing well in Europe, they, they can do well, but they, they also have a lot of other chemicals that uh, they're very strong in and uh, components for high-tech gear and so on uh, that you would know a lot about. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, Europe... Uh, uh, Italy, France, and Spain have stayed pretty much near the 55 mark and seem to be fairly well entrenched right there and uh, doing better than they have done uh, in quite some time. So uh, Europe is, is covering its, its, itself. And then, of course, we got the, uh, the Americas. We got the, uh, uh, the Brazil and uh, Mexico, which is showing its typical weaknesses. And uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Well, when you get to Brazil, you, you can't, you, you have to try, try to separate politics and economics. Hard to do. But very few places are successful at doing that, right? There are. And, uh, Brazil winds up usually with either a strong economy and weak politically or strong politically and weak economically. 
And I, I don't look for that to change anytime soon. That's the way their methodology works. And, and always has and probably and maybe always will. Yeah, could be, could be. Um, to our uh, southern border, Mexico, uh, they're not doing so good. Uh, Mexico, I'm, I'm amazed that we haven't heard more screaming and yelling out of Mexico uh, with the flood of people that are going through the country and uh, what it's doing to uh, their, uh, their own population, their own employment issues. Uh, I'm, I'm just surprised that, uh, uh, that, you know, that, that they haven't been more vocal. Lou, you and I were talking uh, previous about, you know, what's expanding and what's the number where expanding is expanding. And you were looking at Norbert's report and something about a 49 and something about a 43. Uh, I think you've got those numbers. I wonder if you could uh, oh. uh, ask Norbert to cover yeah. what, what it was in that. Uh, Norbert, in in your the report, they refer to the PMI uh, reading of forty three point one percent generally indicates an expansion, and there's another place in the report that uh, they're talking about. Uh, I think the same thing, and I don't know if this is a uh, a, a typo or is it a different perception, and that is. Uh, uh, PMI reading of 49.2 over time generally indicates an expansion. I don't know if, like I said, I don't know if that in fact is a, uh, a oops or what the two numbers mean. Uh, well, it's not an oops. It, it's uh, the way that that's been measured for quite some time. And if we, we quite often talk about 50 in this data and 50 is the break even point. Uh, right. Not growing, not declining. Okay. Um, and so what that number of 49.2 uh, is intended to cover is what is the break even point for the overall sector compared to past growth periods, et cetera, that, that we have. Mm -hmm. So that if you have a number of 49.2, uh, that would indicate for services that uh, we're not growing. If we fall below that, it would be declining. Uh, so it's, it's just another measure of the same thing, basically. But it. It, it's uh, handicapping it, if you will. Mm -hmm. so, so that we understand what uh, uh, what the growth is. So let's say manufacturing is at 43.2, I think. Uh, that means they're still growing. Uh, the overall economy is still, manufacturing economy is still growing above that 43.2 number. Uh, and so... Uh, uh, it, it, tell, it tells me the break-even point for manufacturing is 
generated by the number of companies. We have maybe 14 companies that are representing manufacturing. It means uh, above that number um, that, that uh, they are uh, uh, a, uh, how, how should I say, uh, they're, they're, you're going to be happy with that number above 43.9 mm -hmm. because you're going to get the growth, you're going to get uh, uh, the things that you're looking for in terms of positives and so on. Uh, but it doesn't mean that everybody in the sector is doing well. It's not necessarily broad reaching as it would be at 50 to do that. Got it. Got it. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, that's interesting, Norbert. I know that you were with the Institute for Supply Management for many years uh, and helped develop their survey numbers every month and 43.2 being expansionary, uh, I always look at 50 being the break even, and if you're below 50, uh, you got problems, but right. you could still be growing at you know 44. Yeah, I, I look at this, Tim, the way maybe uh, how I envision an economist looks at it. At 50, the economist, uh, says, uh, well, there's not really a, a lot of activity or anything from that. Uh, at, at 50, the supply chain manager looks at it and says, at 50, things are starting to, to, to get, uh, get, get warmed up and things are starting to get better to do that. So the economist would be more interested in the 43.2 because that's when the overall economy is growing Whereas uh, 50 is where the manufacturing sector or the services sector are growing. Okay. So let's talk about November, December, the holiday season. I see that consumer sentiment cooled off remarkably over the last 30 days, although they're taking on more uh, revolving credit debt. Uh, I guess it's still a case where we're looking at expansion. All of the numbers look expansionary. Um, is that really what we expect to see going into the first quarter of next year? Obviously, we've got a lot of issues around uh, containers and shiploads of uh, materials and so on. Uh, and I don't think we're going to straighten very much of that out because um, nobody's taking any leadership to make that happen, to get the docks back to work. Uh, I, I actually visited out in L.A. in Long Beach two years ago and spoke at a meeting and told them then that... Uh, they were refusing to accept new technology on the docks. They wouldn't, uh, instead of giving somebody uh, an iPad and the ability to barcode, to read a barcode and, and transmit data in real time, uh, the union didn't want any part of that. What they wanted was the ability to control what went on in the docks, which is what they're doing, but uh, it's certainly... Uh, uh, it's, it's not the right thing for them for their long-term benefit, but they're 
caught up in the short term as, as they see it right now. So I don't see the dock situation. Uh, some of those ships are going to start going around in uh, the new uh, lane of the canal. And they're going to take, uh, once they take business away from LA Long Beach, uh, it's going to be hard for them to get it back. That's going to form some of its own problems. And we don't know what all of this with uh, tariffs and uh, everything else. Are, are we going to get rid of the tariffs or are we going to make them uh, put more teeth into the tariffs? Uh, certainly, uh, we need some form. Uh, th there's no such thing as, as free trade. There's something attached to that trade that's going to cost somebody some money associated with it. So uh, maybe we can get rid of the theme of a free trade and get back to fair trade so that uh, we don't have everybody taking advantage of us and we, we, we're getting more of a say in the game than what we chose. And much of what was going on is we abdicated our responsibility to make sure that we were getting fair trade. So hopefully we can get back to that. Well, it's interesting. I just read a alternate point of view article on truck drivers and referred for a long time, and this article said really since 2005, about a truck driver shortage. And the commentary was that we do not have a truck driver shortage. We have a wage disparity that makes the job unattractive. And as they raise the wages for truck drivers, but they're doing 70, 80 hours a week, the turnover at some trucking companies year on year is 90 plus percent. That's probably pretty difficult to manage the driver issue with a backed up port. Well, I would say, Tim, you know that it's not probably the case. It is the case. Uh, you know, I've had suppliers uh, that I've worked with uh, that have a 33% turnover rate. Well, I'm not happy with a company to do business with them because I know how difficult it is to maintain quality, to uh, keep people that are interested in the business, people that are skilled. All of those things go by the wayside when you have that, those kinds of turnover rates. And, you, you know, you can make it as simple. Uh, I, I'm in Marietta, as you well know. Uh, I stopped at a uh, Chick-fil-A just a little while ago. And what you see is uh, that uh, people aren't turning over in those stores versus other stores. Uh, another place uh, uh, posts uh, the number of employees. This is a, a family type of restaurant. Uh, posts the number of employees that have more than 10 years with the company. And they probably have a total employment of maybe a hundred people and 35 of them are uh, more than 10 years with the company. That's how you get good people, take care of them, train them, have them participate. 
those are the positives that we're really looking for. Well, give us some uh, some wrap up, Norbert, of what you look at as you look at both manufacturing and services. I know you follow them both, uh, and I know we've talked on you know what our sense is going through the rest of the year, but with certain issues that uh, are dragging on the economy. As we go into first quarter of next year uh, or longer. Uh, is there a downturn in the offing or a cooling in the offing, or do you think uh, this expansion is just going to continue to roll along? Well, if we, we go back to the uh, uh, thesis that I offered in terms of uh, the, the expansion that can take place, uh, I, I think I'd have to say that uh, there's no alternative but for things to cool off because it's just mathematically uh, improbable, if not impossible for, for them to do that. So I, I look for things to cool. That doesn't mean they necessarily, uh, an awful lot is gonna depend uh, on what happens, how this plays out with Washington. Uh, do, do, are we gonna get uh, more stimulus? And is that gonna come in the form of electric bicycles? <laughs> or, or whether we use our uh, wits and we go back to producing oil so that we can keep that low, lower cost and more favorable toward the consumer. And there's a lot of different, as you said, trade-offs associated, but those are some of the trade-offs that we're seeing. And uh, we absolutely, uh, you know, an increase in energy prices is a tax on productivity. And you can see it at the pumps. Uh, I filled up yesterday and it was 55 cents a gallon difference. Fortunately, I don't have to go out the door to go to work every day. I work at home. But uh, I feel for the people that do have to go out to work and have to bear that additional cost. Yes, uh, no doubt. Uh, Lou, anything else you want to uh, ask Norbert before we wrap this up? No, uh, other than uh, things are looking fairly positive for a while. Uh, going into uh, Q1, uh, we all know and understand that the numbers uh, are not sustainable at this level, but that doesn't mean that it has to crash. And I think that's the point that Norbert was making earlier. Uh, it's going to go down, but it's not necessarily going to cra uh, crash and destroy. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, the midterm elections are going to play a major role in how people uh, really relate to what's going on in the economy. They're either going to have a, a sense of hope or a sense of fear based on the election results. And probably they should have both. Let me ask you one final question, Norbert. The $1.2 trillion stimulus package that uh, became law today, uh, the commentary from the administration is that this will not cause inflation to rise. 
I, I rarely see an instance where spending increases and prices don't rise because demand is up. What's your read of it? Well, there's only so much money in the economy, right? Uh, when you spend that money foolishly, you don't get any more return out of it. You know, if they were spending all of that on capital improvements, the way they've kind of advertised it, right? Uh, that would be much more positive than what they're doing because they're they're taking away um, the the best opportunity for us to work our way through this. When we make capital more, use capital to make ourselves more efficient, we wind up getting uh, a good return on our investment. If, if we don't make it more efficient, then it's a drain. So, you know, they're talking about uh, things like uh, anybody who makes over $500,000 a year that uh, they would get a tax credit. Well, all they talk about is charging, uh, is increasing taxes. And here they want to turn around and give that group uh, tax credit. <laughs> from it. So, I mean, that, that's a, a, a fight that's already been had, and yet they want to bring it up again and try to try to make it happen somewhere. And I, I don't, I don't see that as positive. Uh, inflation, you know, ultimately is a monetary phenomenon. Uh, inventories, employment, all of those have a, an impact. But truly, it's printing money that causes inflation. And we've printed a bunch of money, and they're going to have to do that. The only positive that I can pull out of this, and I'll leave you with that, uh, remember President Obama talked about, well, we're going to spend this on shovel-ready jobs. Uh, being the old purchasing guy that's been around these things for a long time, I, I looked at it and said, there are no shovel-ready jobs. Mm. Well, to Obama's credit, it only took him four years to catch up with me. And, <laughs> and, and say that there are no shovel-ready jobs. Nobody sits around with engineering already completed, waiting for a project that's going to get approved sometime, or maybe. Because those shovel-ready jobs are usually ones that can be deferred if, yeah. they, if they want to. So you get nowhere with it. Anyway, that's my, that's my story. I'm sticking to it. <laughs> All right, thanks for being with us. Always great. Thanks for, for being with us. Surely. We want to thank everybody who has come to this episode of Manufacturing Talk Radio. While you're surfing the web, go to jacketmediaco.com if you're interested in all of our other podcasts. And as always, we appreciate every listener, every viewer who comes to watch Manufacturing Talk Radio. Thanks again for listening. Welcome everyone to this episode of Manufacturing Talk Radio. I'm Tim Grady. I'm here with my host friend from the last 20.
six years, Lou Weiss, who is the president of All Metal and Forge Group, that sponsors Manufacturing Talk Radio and they manufacture open die forgings and seamless rolled ring. And we were kind of yakking it up with our guest, Dr. Chris Keel of Armada Corporate Intelligence, who joins us today. And we drag him on the show under the guise he's going to talk about the credit manager's index report, which he does. And then we drag him all over the conversation <laughs> to other areas. So, Chris, welcome back to the show. Well, thank you very much. I enjoy being dragged into conversations. I mean, <clears throat> when you're an economist, you're constantly looking for new victims to talk to because anybody <laughs> that's heard you before just begins to run the other way, put their fingers in their ears and go to their happy place. You know, so it's, it's always good to, to have new, new audiences. Well, we may have to talk then about farm animals later. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You know, I, I, I do live in Kansas, therefore farm animals are a part of daily life here. So. Yes, I'm yes, sure. <laughs> so let's talk about the Credit Managers Index, which comes out from the National Association of Credit Managers. And just to thank them, please go visit them at nacm.org. Chris, what's going on with the credit managers? Are they tearing out a little hair they have left or are they getting implants? You no, know, you know, they're in pretty good shape right now. Just quickly for people who are not familiar with the credit managers index or NACM or credit managers in general, these are the people that determine what kind of terms you're going to get when you're buying machinery or inventory or anything it is that you're purchasing from a company that is part of your supply chain. So the supply chain in a way ends up being somewhat determined by the decisions on the part of credit managers because they're trying to determine what situation you will be facing as a company when the time comes for you to pay them. Credit managers as a result tend to think a little bit into the future. They're not terribly concerned about how you are doing today. You don't owe them money today. You owe them money in 30, 60, 90, 120, 180 days. So they're looking down the road. So whenever you look at credit manager data, you kind of have to think in the back of your mind, this is where they think we're going to be in two, three, four, six months. Much of what is the value of the CMI is that predictability. And, and in a way, the credit manager's index often predicts the purchasing manager's index because frequently the credit manager does what they do before the purchasing manager does what they do. So with that said, what we saw in the CMI this month was stability. And we don't normally see stability. We often see at least part of the index going up dramatically or going down dramatically, or at least enough to merit some commentary. This month, it was pretty much like last month, which is pretty good news because most of the numbers last month were good. We separate the index into two categories, favorable and unfavorable, from the perspective of a credit manager. So the favorable things are sales, dollar collections, amount of credit extended, and number of new applications applications for credit. The sales numbers have been up in the 70s for a while. And this is an index where anything over 50 is good. Anything under 50 is contraction. So when the numbers are in the 60s and 70s, that's really good. The more interesting thing is that the amount of credit extended jumped up into the 70s, and it hadn't been that high before. 
what the credit managers are attributing this to is kind of related to the supply chain. And we've talked about it on this show before, because people are worried about the supply chain and because they're worried about inflation, they are tending to buy more now than they normally would. They're trying to prepare for higher prices down the road. They're also worried about access to materials. So they're perhaps buying more than they ordinarily would because they're worried about supply. The polite word for this is stockpiling. The impolite word is hoarding. And companies are doing a certain amount of that and the credit managers are noticing it. And it's making them a little bit nervous because they're saying, well, you know, you're asking for a lot more credit than usual, which is okay, but you're counting on demand soaking up that inventory next year. And what if it doesn't? You know, are you going to be in a position where you're not going to be buying anything more into the coming year, or are you going to struggle to pay back the money that we've basically offered you as trade credit? So there's a little bit of concern showing up with the credit managers. The negative categories are things like accounts out for collection and disputes and slow pays and customer deductions and bankruptcies. Those are not as robust as the favorables. They have been, for the most part, above 50, but not by much, like 51.3 and 50.2. And a couple of them have actually fallen into that contraction territory with numbers high 40s, but still in the 40s. The biggest concern on the negative side is that you're getting a lot more accounts out for collection activity, which is making the credit managers a little bit nervous. Slow pays have become a bit of a problem, but bankruptcies are still not an issue. Um, The bankruptcy numbers are still in the high 50s. So the indication is, is that there's some problems occurring, but they're not serious enough to really put companies in jeopardy at this stage, which is relatively good news. So the overall conclusion is steady as she goes, I guess. Um, We are kind of coming into a period of of recovery. If you look at a lot of the other indicators, PMI numbers were saying that earlier this week, the latest job numbers are a lot more confident than we thought they would be. So we're kind of going into the last quarter in pretty good shape. We're just hoping that that carries through into next year. Let me present the other side of that coin. <laughs> yes, please and, do. And, and this, yeah, this is almost too, too much of good news coming from an economist. My question is, aren't we sort of setting ourselves up for the big collapse? It depends. It's one of those things where we're setting ourselves up for our usual dependence on consumers. And the consumer is kind of back in control for about a year. They really weren't because they didn't have the opportunity to consume. They were limited by all the different things we were doing around the pandemic. So now we're back to our normal situation where the consumer is driving everything. The reason that they're doing so well right now is they still have a lot of accumulated money from all the stimulus we did the last two years. That stimulus has ended. And now the money that they're spending, that's what they have. And if they blow through that, then there really isn't necessarily more to come. On the other hand, our unemployment rates are now very low, 4.6. So The majority of people who want a job have a job, and many of them are getting paid more than they were before because they've had more leverage. 
the assertion is that we are going to see a fairly strong spring in terms of consumer spending. The worry begins later in the year because now you start to see things like interest rates going up. You start to see inflation taking a bigger bite out of people's income. You start to see companies struggle a little bit and those workers start to get a little more nervous. So the expectations are that we've probably got another two or three months of pretty good growth. Then by the middle of next year, it starts to slow down and we'll end up with growth that's about what it used to be anywhere between 2.5 and 3.5. We've kind of gotten used to, you know, second quarter was 6.5, third quarter dropped to two. And that felt like a full-on recession, even though all it was doing was going back to normal. Next year is probably going to be normal, but it's going to feel worse because we haven't been at normal for a couple of years. Well, and what about this new phenomenon the great resignation that's going on. Oh, yeah. I mean, part of what's been driving me nuts about the way the media has covered a lot of this stuff is that some of the most obvious influences don't get discussed. We've been talking all about jobs and we don't have enough people and, you know, people don't want to work anymore and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, folks, this is demographics. Boomers are getting older. You know, they may still be dressing like they're 22, but they're not. <laughs> and the fact is, is that we've been losing 10,000 boomers a day to retirement, and we've been doing it for several years. That's three and a half million people a year coming out of the workforce. And not that many years ago, you could count on boomers to kind of stay in longer than normal. But the pandemic forced more than a few of them out. And they said, look, I mean, I don't have to work. I'm retirement age. It's too much of a risk. I'm going to stay out. So the shortage of people and all the resignations has been predictable. It's just, it's just demographics. The only way that we solve that problem is, you know, have more kids. I mean, change child labor laws. You know, I mean, if they're, if they're old enough to play video games and they can program, what the heck? You know, I mean, get them a job. And we're not big on immigration. And even now, even as we try to figure out what to do with immigration, we're trying to lure the talented people from around the world, which everybody else wants as well. So it's, it's a, a little bit different environment. And then, of course, you get the usual media hysteria about things over which the media shouldn't be hysterical. Um, inflation has been driving me nuts and I'm sure this will get me in trouble but the guy that that invented Twitter was talking the other day about how we are on the edge of hyperinflation and I just have to remind people that the first four letters of Twitter is twit and that pretty much describes that gentleman hyperinflation is 50% inflation per month over a period of time this is when prices change by the hour. We have never had hyperinflation. We never will have hyperinflation until, of course, the aliens attack and the world comes to a halt. This is Weimar Republic in the 1930s deal. And it's like, we're not dealing with that. We're not dealing with stagflation either. Stagflation is when you have high growth and high unemployment. Unemployment's 46 
we're not even close to a stagflation situation. What we have is higher than normal inflation, which is in itself enough of a problem without trying to scare people with idiotic references. And when the thing that you invented is for twits that can't communicate in more than 26 letters, why are you so proud of yourself to begin with? Um, that's just me. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's great. Uh, Tim, <laughs> when we get off, we're going to call our lawyers. <laughs> yeah, that, that sponsorship deal is gone now. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I want everybody to know that the opinions that expressed here are those of the guests of <laughs> Factory Talk Radio, or its affiliates, assigned donors, and Exactly. <laughs> and my business partner is, is somewhere going, that's no, don't say that. No, that's not our motto. That's just him. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to throw you a wild one, Chris, um, and it gets real volatile, so I'll let you field it however you want <laughs> saying, I'm not going to answer that. Very good. Uh, we're approaching zero growth uh, for population in the United States. Right. And since 1973, Roe v. Wade, we have stopped the birth of 60 million Americans. So we've shot our own foot off, and we're not the only country doing it. China's no. child policy hurt them tremendously. The, the uh, Scandinavian countries, which also allow uh, you know abortion to take place quite freely, have the same problem. So you know we're looking at a worker shortage, and it's a uh, almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. Right. I mean, population dynamics has changed so dramatically because at one point, the average family size was four or five. I mean, kids had, you had large families and you don't have to go back all that far to have families of eight, nine, 10 kids. That was the way you survived. That was the way that you had people to take care of you in your dotage. And the problem has always been, no matter what society you're dealing with, is the people with the most money have the fewest children. They want that money for themselves. They don't necessarily want to spend it on large families. And so you've had larger families in poorer populations than you have in the richer populations. So not only are we not having as many children, no matter what country you talk about, but we also don't quite know what to do with the children we're having you know we're not necessarily changing the education system to accommodate the needs of of society we squander productivity because a lot of the kids are not getting the education that is needed and it's not that they're not necessarily being educated but there's never been a good connection between the education system and the business community and neither communicates very well with the other so what business people want, they're not necessarily getting from the education system. And the education system often doesn't know what it is that business wants. And it creates a, a constant dilemma. All I ever hear from people that don't work in manufacturing is why don't you chain your own people? You know, why are you waiting for somebody else to do it? And then I try to point out that 75% of manufacturers in this country have less than 25 employees. And I've, I've heard the drill. I mean, the guy will go to his senior guy and say, hey, I just hired Skippy here. I want you to train him. And the senior guy goes, seriously? Are you going to give me a raise? No. Are you going to give me less to do? No. 
So I'm already working a 50, 55 hour week from you. And you want me to train this idiot who doesn't even know how to turn the machine on? No. And given that the number one way that manufacturers recruit now is poaching each other, that guy just looks at his boss and says, just because you ask me to do this, I'm going to go to work for the guy across the street because that's absurd that you think I'm going to train this kid. And the company is basically saying, look, we've got to have a pipeline. So at least the kid knows a little before we have to set about training him for our job. And we don't, we don't create that pipeline in most cases. I mean, states, if there is any orientation towards that kind of training, it's coming from state and local governments, not necessarily from the federal side. And when people keep asking, well, what can federal government do? I said, train. You know, it's like you're really big on setting up new regulations and you're very excited about new taxes and you're constantly bleeding on about creating jobs. You don't create jobs, business does. And it would be nice if you were able to create people to take the jobs that business has on offer, considering there are 10.3 million of them that are going unfilled right now. So there's just a lot of, of skewed priorities. And not only are our family sizes smaller, we don't do as much immigration as we used to. That's a complicated issue because we don't want more unskilled people. We want skilled immigrants. But so does everybody else. The Europeans, the Asians, they all want those same people. Well, <laughs> well Lou actually has created something called the Circle of Uncertainty and Insecurity, which is going to be headlined in our upcoming issue of Manufacturing Outlook. And you know, put all of these words and phrases that you know make a business person a little uh, nervous and uncomfortable because there's so many unknowns. And Lou and I right. have discussed many times, Chris. Yeah, the ISM number is in the 60s, and the services number is in the mid 60s, and IHS is 58.3, and it all sounds wonderful. But we're kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop because it doesn't feel wonderful. Yeah, it's it's so much of the growth this year is is not artificial. It's real enough that it's bounding back from 2020. I mean, going forward, economists are going to look at 2020 and 2021 as both anomaly years that you can't really compare anything to. 2020 was a catastrophic recession, which was imposed by government edict. We'd never had anything like that before. Every other recession had some kind of an origin in some sector. 2008 was the banking and housing sector. We knew where the problem was. This time, it was like, we're doing fine. March of 2020, we're just barreling along. All of a sudden, attention, attention, everything is closed. Don't talk to anyone. Don't speak to anyone. Cover your face with a plastic bag. Avoid all contact with all human beings for the rest of your life. What? okay um and and oh by the way 70 million of you just lost your jobs and oh yeah uh, about 800,000 companies you just went out of business today and it's like what what the hell you know and a million could, people died yeah could 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 i have gotten just a little heads up 20 minutes 15 you know something I mean, this is kind of like having NASA announce that the moon just shifted out of orbit will hit in about an hour. Um, so, you know, whatever you've been putting off 
you've, you've, you've got 60 minutes, so go for it. Um, it was, it was an anomaly. And then bouncing back from it has been just as much of an anomaly because once the pressure was lifted, people tried to go back to their old habits as fast as they could and, in a, and sort of overdid it. So 2022 becomes the year that we kind of rediscover normal. And we'll find that many of those problems didn't go away and we sort of have new ones to pile on top of it. Most of the things that we observed in the last year had been happening prior to 2020, but just not at that speed. We were already doing online. We were already going to remote work. We were already changing. We already had labor shortages in manufacturing, construction, transportation. That wasn't new. We already had a supply chain that was in trouble, but it wasn't as obvious as it's been in the last two years. So I agree with you. You know, 2022 is a lot more mysterious to me than than people are making it out to be. You know, I think it's going to be a, an adjustment year. Some will do very well, uh, but others are are going to struggle because these things are going to start catching up with them to a degree. And on the other hand, you'll have some reactions that will be positive. We've talked about the number of companies looking at reshoring now because they've lost faith in the supply chain. And I've been asking on all the groups that I've spoken to in the last couple of months, specifically the last couple of days, so I was talking to bankers, the Illinois bankers and the Kansas bankers. And I said, well, according to the research, companies are looking to reshore. Are you seeing that? And all the bankers said, yep, absolutely. Number one question we're getting right now, companies saying, hey, I'm moving back from China, Vietnam, wherever. Can you help me get land? And how do I get a loan to do this? And I'm moving back a bunch of people. Where are they going to live? Is there housing here? And the banks are like, oh, yeah, we're getting hit with this every day. So it's, it's a real enough phenomenon which will benefit us medium term. But in the short term, it's like, yay, they're all moving back. And we don't have enough workers now. <laughs> well, I'm glad you said that because I was, I was already jumping off of my stool here. Uh, you bring back a million, two million jobs. You're not bringing back people. You're bringing right. back jobs. And on this side of the ocean, you don't have the people. Right. We don't have the people now, but you're going to bring back two million more. Maybe we should start using uh, prison uh, prisoners <laughs> and retrain them. Uh, I mean, well, I were talking about that six, eight years ago. Right. Well, one of the things that's being suggested now is there's a lot of pressure mounting to say, look, we want to bring this work back to the United States and we need all these workers. Well, guess what? A lot of our current workers in these other countries would love to come with it and come live in the United States. But the inhibition is they can't get visas. And so the pressure now is, look, you know, I've got a bunch of great workers here in Vietnam and they're all like, yeah, I've got relatives in Vietnam. Can I come too? And I've got relatives that live in LA. So, hey, you know, I want to come back. And from a strictly economic perspective, it's one thing to try to deal with somebody who's desperately seeking access to the United States from horrible circumstances in their home country. It's quite another for somebody who's a skilled machinist in in china saying 
yeah, okay, I'm 26 years old and I live in China and I'm a skilled machinist and I have no problem at all living in Nebraska. Can I come to the U.S.? Yeah, very true. The other thing, I think where we're going to find some workers, Chris, is the automotive industry. Right. You know, the, the, the automobile has several hundred parts to create its drivetrain and engine and the right. electric one has 20. So there's yeah. going to be a lot of people leaving manufacturing here to go to manufacturing there because their jobs aren't needed anymore. Right. And I think one of the things, and you bring up another issue, which is how fast will some of these transitions take place? Because we hear a lot of conversation about the rise of alternative energy and all that sort of stuff. Well, we saw some of the limitations this year, the European energy crisis is due in no small part to the fact that the wind didn't blow in Europe this year. They got 20, <laughs> they got 20% of what they expected to get from their wind farms, which is why they ended up being more dependent on natural gas. And the Russians took full advantage of this to be the creeps they usually are and restricted gas supply. So it's one of those things that, yeah, alternatives are great, but understand that you're dependent on whether the wind blows or the sun shines, and it doesn't always. The Energy Information Agency did a report, and they're, you know, they're generally very interested in alternatives and all the rest. And they said, by the year 2050, we will still be 76% dependent on fossil fuel globally. So coal will be a, about a quarter gas will be about a quarter, oil will be about a quarter, and the amount of power that's coming from alternatives will have increased by 7%. And that's about it. And the utilities keep pointing out saying, well, look, if we all go electric, you do realize that we have to produce the power that goes into those cars. So you may not be using as much gasoline, but we're going to be using more coal and oil and gas to build the utilities to fuel those cars. Do you not remember Texas a couple years ago where a bad winter literally caused us to black out almost the entire Southwest? We didn't have enough capacity. Where would we have been if we had all the electric vehicles that you're thinking of having? And, and you know, bottom line is 2.6% of the U.S. fleet is electric. So we're a long way away from even having a significant contribution from the electric industry. So these are all, they're on their way, but they're decades from now. And, and people are continuing to talk about it like, yes, we're going to be an all-electric country by next Thursday. No, no, we won't. Hello? <laughs> well, uh, you... Uh... I'm more depressed now than when I got on the show. Well, see, <laughs> you you started out by saying I was being optimistic for an economist, so I had a reputation to defend. You know, it's like, my God, these these people are happy. I can't have that. Um, so, <laughs> so you painted a uh, interesting picture, which I, by the way, agree with. Good part of it. I I think that you know when you referred to the new normal. Uh, there is no new normal. This is the way it is. And it's going right. to be this way and continue to be this way. And the old normal is dead and gone. And Even if we could figure out what the old normal was, because right. I mean, every company that I ever deal with, I mean, they just laugh when people talk about 
anything being consistent because you know everything changes particularly in a manufacturer's life the manufacturer is always in the most unenviable position because they're dealing with downstream and upstream they're trying to figure out what's happening with their suppliers with commodities with all the things they use over which they have no control and then at the same time they're trying to figure out what the customer is doing and even if they're selling into an oem you're selling into a, an automobile manufacturer. Well, ultimately, it's still going to depend on what Joe Public wants to buy. And all it takes is for gasoline prices to jump by 50, 60, 70 cents a gallon. And suddenly people want to buy fuel sippers again. And the auto industry is like, well, I thought you didn't like fuel sippers. Well, we don't unless gas is expensive. But as soon as gas comes down again, we'll ditch those puppies and go back to our trucks and SUVs. And the auto industry goes, you do realize it takes four or five years to get a car ready for production. Oh, no, no, no. We want to change our mind by the hour. And it's like, well, I what? Consumers are beyond a doubt the most, they're just, they're squirrels. You know, they change their minds instantly. I mean, if you want to understand consumer behavior, literally just watch a squirrel trying to cross the street and, and you'll... <laughs> You will quickly understand the dynamic. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, I don't know if I can take much more of this, Tim. <laughs> well, we appreciate you being with us, Chris, and sharing your insights, which are pretty sound, but great analogies. Thanks again. You're welcome. Thanks, Chris. See you next month. See you next month. I'll be happier, maybe. <laughs> Uh, yeah we'll have to work on that <laughs> thanks right. you take care thank you everyone for watching this episode of manufacturing talk radio we encourage you to go to nacm.org which is the national association of credit managers for the report that they have and while you're surfing stop by jacketmediaco.com where you can find this episode and all of our previous ones along with our additional podcasts and a link to the Manufacturing Outlook Digital Easy. And I mentioned, again, thanks for listening to this episode of Manufacturing Talk Radio. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.